Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Family is such an important and core theme of, of the Bible. And it's interesting to me that considering how core the idea of family is, not least that we are adopted into the family of God through what Jesus Christ has done, reconciled back into the family from which we had alienated ourselves by our own sinfulness. It's interesting to me that uh, Jesus only tells two parables that are related to family directly. They're parables about the, the challenges of family life, particularly in an honor-shame culture and the challenges of being shamed within the family dynamic. And it doesn't take much Christian knowledge to be able to put two and two together and see that both of these, parallel, uh, both of these parables have something to tell us about our response to God and the consequences, therefore, of that response. Of course, uh, perhaps the most well-known of all the parables and certainly the most well-known of the two family parables that Jesus tells is the story of the prodigal son. Uh, you could argue that it should be called the story of the prodigal sons because there's two sons that play in that story and they both have an important part to play. And Similarly, the second parable about family is also about two sons, and it's found in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. A very short parable. We're going to explore it today. And it's actually the first of three parables that Jesus tells, having come into Jerusalem uh, as a king, fulfilling the prophecies that need to be fulfilled, or some of them at least. There are still some that he'll go on to fulfill through his actions on the cross and and other activities as well. But as Jesus comes triumphantly into Jerusalem and clears out the temple and curses the fig tree, there's all sorts of excitement going on as we head into the core part of the passion narrative, the core part of Holy Week. But then he goes on to tell three parables back to back. Now, we don't know whether they literally happen chronologically back to back, but they're presented in Matthew's gospel as if he tells them back to back. And What's interesting about them is that they're all basically about the same thing. And Jesus' parable storytelling is getting more and more urgent the closer he gets to the cross. In fact, the closer that he gets to the cross, the more stark the language that Jesus uses in his parables becomes. But the same basic premise is at play in all of these parables. And it basically is to demonstrate what true honor, fidelity, and obedience to God look like and what the reward of such a response to God actually is. Have you ever reacted badly to a request to do something? Perhaps at home or perhaps at work? Mainly at home. Uh, I mean, of course you have. You've all been teenagers and you've probably all been asked to clean up your bedroom and rolled your eyes at whoever asked you to do it. I don't tend to roll my eyes at human beings when they tell me to do things now. My main eye rolling is reserved for Alexa every Thursday night at 10 p.m. when Alexa chimes in and says, Ben, it's time to take the bins out. And I'm like, oh, great, I could take the bins out. So I don't like being told what to do, especially by robots. But the truth is, we all have responsibilities. We all have things that we have to do in our daily lives. And here, Jesus is telling a story of familial responsibility, a father, the honored patriarch in the family, the elder who is to be honored and respected and obeyed. He doesn't ask his sons to do something. It's not a question. It's not an invitation to consider the response. It is an instruction. This is what I want you to go and do. And Jesus tells his parable and we see what happens. So Matthew 21, 28, Jesus starts his parable by saying, what do you think? And I like the beginning of this parable because Jesus is making an invitation to his audience and to us. He's basically saying, hey, listen carefully. Turn on your brain. Consider this. 
Don't just go with the flow, but think about it. How often do you actively examine your walk with Jesus? More specifically, how often do you allow Jesus to examine your walk with him? See, we're blessed here at The Message to have loads of opportunities to do this kind of thing right here on Tuesdays and our morning gatherings every day and our monthly prayer day, which is so powerful and important to the life of the ministry, but the individuals who then make up that ministry movement. It's important for us. We have plenty of opportunity, whether it's gathering together with the whole city for Greater Manchester Prayer or the special events that get put on the prayer times on a Tuesday afternoon. Don't forget, 12 till 3 today. Great segue, Ben. Well done. So you have to keep prayer at the center of everything that we do because prayer is the lifeblood of our connectivity and our relationship with Jesus, but also prayer provides for us the opportunity to reflect if we do it the right way. If all of our praying simply becomes about petitioning God and we never actually open up an opportunity to reflect for perspective from God, then you have a deficient prayer life. But we should be praying in such a way that actively invites Jesus to examine the state of our lives and our walk with him. And that's what he's doing here through this parable. He's saying, listen very carefully, because the story that I'm about to tell you is going to bring an examination of your life. And what is found on the other side of that examination will set the course for what follows. But the truth is, it doesn't matter how much time you give to reflection or how much time of reflection is forced upon you, what you do with that time and how you act in line with what is then downloaded into your soul is entirely up to you. You can lead a Christian to living water, but you can't make them drink as it is said. The parable goes on. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, not asked, said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. That's a command, not optional. I will not, the son answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Or Jesus has asked us the question. Which one? Which of the two? The first son or the second son? What do you think? Who thinks it's the first son who did what the father wanted? By the way, the, the clue is in the text here. He's, I know you're all nervous because you think it's a trick question, don't you? It's a trick question. He's, it seems too obvious. It's a trick question. And I imagine that the audience at the time, these religious uh, zealots and, and kind of hypocrites, they, they were probably uh, worried about the same thing as they offered their response. This seems somehow too obvious. It's obviously the first son I'm going to say it's the first son, but I'm kind of nervous that I'm going to get kapowed with a no trick question. Well, the thing is, they do answer the first. And Jesus affirms that they're right to say the first one, but then he reveals that it's worse than a trick question. You know what's worse than a trick question? A truth question. A question that's designed to examine the state of your heart and reveal the truth that underlies it all. And they walk straight into Jesus. Not trap, they walk into his truth. Jesus is never trying to track you. He's never trying to trap you. He's always trying to bring you into the truth. They walk into his truth and they are, find, they are found wanting. You see, just like I said before, Jesus came to Jerusalem as king, fulfilling prophecy, receiving the due adoration of the crowd. But now his authority is being questioned by those who stand to lose if he wins. That sounds strange. Surely if Jesus wins, we all win. No, for those who find hope in their own righteousness, if Jesus wins, you lose. 
or at least you think you do. And their hope is in their own righteousness and not his. You see, the more Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, the more they are revealed to be needing of one. Not simply a savior for the nation, as they had in mind about what their Jewish Messiah would be, but a savior for their souls. But they're too stubborn to see Jesus for who he is. You see, they can't turn to his righteousness because that would involve turning from their own. Jesus says to them, truly I tell you. See, it's not a trick question. He doesn't say, trickily I told you. He says, truly, it's a truth question. I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. You cannot begin to wrap your mind around how shocking what Jesus has just said is to the audience that he's speaking. He probably couldn't say anything much more shocking than outright obvious over blasphemy and this is borderline blasphemous in what's being said here anyway but it is disgraceful and disgusting to the ears of what is being said because these pious holy so-called righteous men who think they are completely right with God because they tick all the letter of the law boxes that they've been told whilst forgetting that it's about the heart more than anything else are looking at all of these people in the community who don't live ticking the boxes. In fact, they live the furthest away from ticking the boxes of the law. And Jesus says, hey, those ones over there, they will inherit the kingdom of God before you do. What? That's shocking. That's outrageous. It's disgraceful. For John came, John the Baptist came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. What does John come saying? He says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preaches Jesus' best sermon before Jesus does. And Jesus comes along and says, I like that. I'll take it. I'll use it. And preaches the very same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The only difference is when Jesus proclaims it, he's talking about himself. He's not pointing to something else. He's pointing directly to himself. He's saying, I am the one. More specifically, the way, the truth and the life, no one will come to the Father, not even the most righteous or pious person, not even the person who has ticked the most boxes of obeying the law will come to the Father, but through me. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. He's pointing to me. I am the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Why is Jesus using tax collectors and prostitutes? Well, quite simply because they're two particular groups in the community that are viewed as being the worst of the worst sinners. And he's bundling them together and saying, hey, all of the people that you look at in society and think are the worst of the worst, the least likely, the least deserving of God's grace and mercy and compassion, the least likely to inherit the kingdom of God, they're going in before you. Why? Because they have trusted in the way of righteousness, and you have not. And here's the worst bit of it all. Even after you saw this grace in action, even after you saw my power at work, or if you don't want to make it about me, God's power at work, even if you saw that in the lives of these people, the transforming power of God at work, repentance, the joy of salvation, overflowing the day of jubilee of freedom has come and you've seen it with your own eyes. Miracles, casting out of demons, the glorification of the one true God. And guess what? You still refuse to believe. Even then, even after every opportunity has been afforded you to come around to the truth, you're the one that's playing tricks on yourself. Because the fool only fools themselves. Anyone who knows even the most basic 
Greek has probably heard the word metanoia. You don't need to know too much Greek to have probably heard a Christian sermon somewhere along the road where a preacher has got excited about talking about repentance. The Greek word metanoia, where we get the word metamorphosis from, and the idea of a caterpillar going into their cocoon and metamorphosizing into a beautiful butterfly. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of the transformation that comes when we repent. We're literally going the wrong way. The biblical word repent, metanoia, literally means change direction. Have a complete change of mind, of heart, of personhood, of everything. Change. It's wrapped up in this beautiful, precious word. And we get it right here. You did not change. You did not repent. Except here, the Bible doesn't use the word metanoia. Here, we get a different word. We get the word metamolomai. Metamolomai is very close to metanoia, but it's just got a little distinctive extra tag to it. It's not used very often in the Bible. It's only used six times. Two of them are in this very passage right here. In fact, we get the word metamolomai even before we get the word repent in verse 32. I wonder if you cast your eyes across the Bible. Disappointingly, not many of you have your Bibles out right now. Gary, well done. Cast your eyes across your Bible there, Gary. And as you look across your Bible at this little passage, I wonder if you could spot, I'm not just putting this on you, Gary, don't worry. I'm not going to call you out and shame you. Not a trick question. Thank you. But as you cast your eyes across this passage, I wonder if you can spot the first use of metamolomai, repent, even before we get it explicitly in verse 32. Do you see it? It comes in verse 29, doesn't it? I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind. Metamolomai, exactly the same word that is used then later for repent. Now, why do I draw attention to this? Just to show off a bit of fancy Greek knowledge? No, who cares about that? It's because there's something very specific going on here. Actually, what's going on is that this word, see, metanoia very, is a pretty tight word. It literally means change direction. But metamolomai, it has a little extra dynamic to it. And the extra dynamic is this. It means remorseful and regretful. If we were to quite literally translate that word into the sentence, it would be that the son, the father came to the son and said, you've got to go into the field. And the son said, I will not. But later, he remorsefully repented and was obedient. Why do I draw attention to this remorsefulness? I'll tell you why. Because we know that we need to be repentant, but I'm not sure that we always know that we need to be remorseful. And remorse is an important dynamic of our Christian faith. Because if you don't take seriously the significance of the shame that you brought upon God and the catastrophic, catastrophic effects of what that's worked into the world, with great remorse and regret, your repentance will not be fully effective. Because it will not usher you out of the shame of what was and lead you into the freedom and assurance of what is to come. In other words, you will have compromised your ability to truly celebrate the joy of your salvation. Because a cheap God can save you from cheap offensive. But only the costly God of the kingdom of heaven who sends his own son can save you from the greatest cost of the universe. The question is, are you remorseful about it? Are you regretful? Do you long to not go back to the things of yesterday? Because I've got to be honest, there's times in my life when I actually feel like I'm a bit too flippant about the things of yesterday. And I think I've actually still got one foot back in the camp of yesterday. Because even though I've 
repented, I'm not sure how truly remorseful I am about the state of my heart and celebratory over the magnitude of the salvation that God has won for me. But remorse comes and we're not trapped in remorse and grief and guilt. We're set free, but we still remember the significance of just how we shame God. You know, in the other story of the prodigal son, we talk about uh, the, the other familial story of the prodigal son. We often make a big deal of the father running to the son, don't we? And in Jewish culture, uh, the patriarch, the father, the elder statesman, they wouldn't have run. And it's amazing that he kind of throws off those shackles and runs. That's his desperation. That's a powerful image. And it's a good image. And it's an important part of the story. Probably the most important dynamic of the father running is this sense of his love for his son to see him welcome back into the community. But there is a little quirk of ancient culture still present even today in certain honor and shame cultures around the world. We don't have an honor and shame culture in the UK. We seem to increasingly be becoming a shame culture, but we don't do the honor part very well. But in many parts of the world, they still have honor and shame as their driving cultural and societal makeup. And this is certainly true in the ancient world that Jesus is writing to, middle ancient uh, Near East. So in the story of the uh, prodigal son, as the son comes home, there's this idea that when you shame the elder in a community, it's not just a family issue, it's a community issue. And probably what would happen in most communities, if you shamed to the degree that the prodigal son, again, very shocking story, the way that Jesus tells it to his listeners. If you shamed the elder in the community in the way that he has, the whole community would disown you to the degree that they would actually have a ceremony where they would stand you in front of the whole community. They would bring out a big jar and they would smash the jar on the floor to show your broken connection to the community. You are no longer welcome. Now, we know that that's true historically. Whether Jesus intends for us to take that into the parable or not, I'm not sure. But it's still an interesting idea that perhaps the father is running to the son to get to the son before the community can. Because the community will reject him, but the father will accept him. And once the father has accepted him, he is brought back into the loving embrace. But you see in the son a genuine remorsefulness that a father can see that the wider community won't. And when the father sees that remorsefulness, that regretfulness, he can put his seal of approval upon it and say, that is saving faith right there. Community, you can trust that this is true repentance because my son is changed. And is that not what repentance is about? Well, ultimately, it's about forgiveness. Repentance is the gateway to forgiveness, but it's about reconciliation and transformation. What's the worst thing that's ever been said to you? I don't want you to linger on that too much and bring up some bad memories. (laughs) But what's the worst thing that's ever been said to you, I wonder? These are pretty hurtful things that have been said, and they take all shapes and sizes. You know, I think about some of the things. I wonder what you think the worst thing ever said to me is. Maybe, you know, four eyes, I wear the glasses. Lead scum, I've had that a few times. Baldy, I wear a hat for a reason. You know, these are all these, are all these, I know. These are all, I'm just joking, it's fine. These are all things that could come your way, right? Hurtful things about your appearance or about your performance or about all of these different things. But you know what probably one of the most hurtful things that was ever said to me was? It wasn't even said to condemn me. It was actually said to help me search my heart. I was having a conversation with a friend. It's probably about 17, 18 years ago. Long, long time, but it sticks with me even to this day. Having a conversation with a friend, we got into a deep and meaningful theological conversation, disagreement about something, and I went off on a long spiel about what I thought about this, that, and the other, and some frustrations that I had with this group of people over here and why I didn't feel like they were doing enough and this, that, and the other. And he looked at me at the end of it, and you know, he said, Ben, 
He said, you talk such a good game. He's like, you probably talk the best game of anybody I know. He said, but when I look at your life, I just don't see it. And that stuck with me forever. Because too often, we're susceptible to talking a good game. Yes, I will. I'll do it, Lord. But then when the rubber hits the roads, really, we're the second son. And we're like, no, no, I, I never said no to you, God. I've always said yes. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm the obedient one. I'm the, I'm the one that's getting the right standing with you. But in the meanwhile, we're not actually going to the vineyards. Whereas the other one who we thought had rejected the father is out there busy doing what the father asked them to do. You see, the truth is with Jesus, the first response is not the most important one. It's not unimportant, but the first response is not the most important one. The lasting responses. What is the lasting response of your life? By the time Jesus confronts the religious hypocrites with their lack of repentance, he's saying to them something truly astonishing. The worst sinners of this society will see heaven before you do because they've been remorseful about their sin and they've changed their way. They've gone from their way to God's way. They don't talk a good game, they live it. Even the Jewish Talmud, collected rabbinical sayings say this, righteous men promise little and perform much. Whereas the wicked promise much and do not even perform little. It's not about how much you promise. It's how the promise changes your life. Jesus is saying in his parable, the first response really isn't the issue. The lasting response is the life will speak louder than the lips. You know, my friends, entrance to the kingdom is not promised to those who say, yes, Jesus. It's not. Entrance to the kingdom of God is promised to those who do the will of the Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is not to get you questioning your salvation. You can be assured of your salvation. If you have any concern over that and you want to wrestle with that a little bit today, just go read Hebrews. You'll get all the assurance you need. You can be assured of the future of your salvation, of your hope, if your faith in Jesus Christ is sincere. But a sincere faith is not a faith that says, yes, Jesus, while living. No. A sincere faith, even though sometimes it might wrestle with a bit of a verbal no and a bit of, if ultimately the lasting response is obedience, then you are in the will and the grip of the grace of the Father. But Ben, I'm a Christian. Well, great. But are you a repentant one? Theologian Mark Boda says, repentance is not just the gateway into relationship with the triune God. That's how we think about it. Repentance is for the unbelievers. Repentance is the way that you get into relationship with Jesus. No, relationship, repent, that is true, but it's not the whole story. Repentance is not just the gateway into relationship with the triune God. It is the pathway for that continuing relationship. As Martin Luther wrote, the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. The Christian life involves a lifelong relationship. And as long as we are in this fallen world, repentance will be an enduring part of our lives. Which begs the question, is your Christian life a mockery to God? I don't say that to be condemnational. I say it to myself as much as anybody else as an opportunity to self-reflect once again and invite the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the power of God to wash over us and set us free from having one foot in the old when God has set us free entirely for the new. Is your Christian life a mockery to God? Are you a second brother 
Christian. Yes, Jesus in worship, but no Jesus in the world. Yes, Jesus while watched by others, but no Jesus while watching pornography. Yes, Jesus on the platform, but no Jesus in private. Yes, Jesus when you benefit, but no Jesus when burdened. Yes, Jesus when you're served, but no Jesus when asked to serve. Jesus is not primarily concerned with that first response as important as it is. He's concerned with the ongoing, lifelong, lasting response that follows. We either turn to him or we don't. Not a yes simply from our lips, but a yes of obedience and sacrificial worship from the entirety of our lives, despite ourselves at times. The good news for the religious hypocrites is also good news for us. If God is patient with the tax collector and prostitute while they move from an initial, no thank you Jesus, to a remorsefully repentant, I need you Jesus, then we can trust him to be patient with us as well. We need his patience. His arms of mercy are open. But if we ultimately reject him, we will be ultimately rejected. God is forbearing, that means patient. He's forbearing, but he's not foolish. God is patient, but there's always a line in the sand beyond which his patience will no longer be mocked. And ultimately, we will be rejected by our rejection of him. But for those who repent and make it a life of repentance, there will be rejoicing. You know, there's only one line in scripture that tells us what all of heaven rejoices over. Oh, we get scriptures about heaven worshiping and pouring out worship and adoration on the king of kings. It's a beautiful picture of worship. And we get a picture in the uh, Old Testament of Jesus rejoicing over, uh, of God rejoicing over his people. But there's only one passage in scripture that says what all of heaven rejoices over. And funnily enough, it's found just before that story of the prodigal son in the little narrative of things being lost and then found where it says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to uh, to repent. My brothers and sisters, there is no such righteous person in the world. There has been, and his name is Jesus. Now he's left us his spirit, that by his spirit we would live as he is righteous, and yet knowing this side of eternity, there will be need in our journey for us to say, God, I realized yesterday I gave you more of a no than a yes. I'm sorry, but let not me be judged by my first response. By your grace, could I be judged by the lasting response? You see, repentance is the way into relationship with Christ and repentance is also the way through relationship with Christ. Heaven will rejoice and the difference will be remorseful repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We need you. We are lost, mucky, messy, confused creatures who by your grace have been brought into a new eternal inheritance, a new identity. We are not what we were because of your grace. We are not without hope. We are not without power. We are not without the ability by your spirit to resist the things which we could not formerly resist. We are not defeated, even though we are hard-pressed, just as Paul says. We are hard-pressed, we are persecuted, but we are not overcome. There is hope. 
There is freedom and it is found in Jesus. And yet, Lord, we don't want to be second brother Christians who try to access that by saying, yes, Lord, but living no. Lord, we're sorry for the times that our lips say no, but would they be overturned by the reality of our lives saying yes to you day by day? And would it bring great glory to you? Would it bring an impact into this world as they see hope through our lives? And would it lead to an eternal inheritance for us as you have promised and for which we can be in assurance of? In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a brand new episode there right now.